The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Woodrow Wilson's provocative plan for world peace. In late 1918, World War I was winding down, but the fighting over what exactly peace would look like was just getting started. Wilson stepped in with 14 points that he thought would create lasting peace not just then, but for future generations. He faced an uphill battle, though, getting our European allies and our own Congress to back the plan. Neither was easy, and it took a heavy toll on his presidency and his health. Our 28th POTUS, Woodrow Wilson. He's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. For this episode on Woodrow Wilson, author Tom Nock is joining us. He's a professor of history and chair of the Clements Department of History at Southern Methodist University. He's a member of the editorial board for Presidential Studies Quarterly and the board of trustees of the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library. In addition to all of that, he's written several terrific books on the presidency, including one that we want to get into today. Titled To End All Wars, Woodrow Wilson and the Quest for a New World Order. Tom, we appreciate you taking the time to join us here on American POTUS. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Tom, this is Alan. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to hear your voice again. Tom was a, is a great friend from our time at SMU when I was director of the George Bush Library. I certainly treasure those years, Tom, and really appreciate you joining us on American POTUS. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. Now, today we're going to focus on President Wilson's foreign policy, but first let's talk for just a moment about his domestic priorities. What did Wilson include in his new freedom program that advanced the progressive agenda? Well, most people who know something about Woodrow Wilson know that he is probably best known as kind of the father of American internationalism and the author of the League of Nations Covenant, that sort of thing. But I like to put... T.R. and Woodrow Wilson together as the two authors of big government in the 20th century. Uh, They dominate that two-decade period. And with Woodrow Wilson, you open a new chapter, I think, in the modern presidency. I would say that he is one of the three greatest legislators among presidents, at least in the 20th century. If half the scorecard is foreign policy and the other half is domestic policy, then that's definitely the case that there's Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. And in the case of Wilson, uh, his new freedom reforms were really quite significant after a, a, a really fantastically exciting presidential campaign in 1912 with four candidates, T.R., Taft, Wilson, and Debs. He put through in this first couple of years the first downward revision of the tariff since before the Civil War. Recently, we've been raising tariffs, but uh, this was the time when you wanted to lower them to sort of stimulate international trade. 
He also signed into law the Federal Reserve Act. We had not had any kind of banking legislation since the Civil War, and the economy of the United States by you get, the time you get to the 1910s was gigantic, the biggest in the world. It exceeded uh, the GNP of the United Kingdom, uh, Germany, and France together. And the Federal Reserve System, of course, was an effort on the part of the federal government to balance um, public control and private uh, control of the banking system and, and establish the Federal Reserve System, which is still with us. And I think most people would say it uh, it's done a pretty good job over these decades. It's generally regarded as Wilson's greatest legislative uh, achievement. He put through the basic uh, antitrust law that's on the books today, the Clayton Antitrust Act, and established the Federal Reserve Commission, uh, uh, pardon me, the Federal Trade Commission, which uh, which the federal government, rather than doing too much trust busting, you have continuous regulatory oversight on the part of the FTC with regard to fair and unfair business practices. He did all that in the first couple of years of his first term. And then in the last year of that term in 1916, this is kind of the high tide of uh, progressivism, I think, he pushed through the Adamson Act. That's enormously significant uh, act established the eight-hour day for all the nation's railroads, more people, uh, railroad workers, more people worked for the railroads than anything else back then. And that was really quite a, a big deal. About a half a million, close to a half a million workers got the eight-hour day by the stroke of a pen. And on the heels of that came the Keating Owen child labor law, putting first time you have federal restrictions on child labor. Uh, you have a Federal Workmen's Compensation Act for the first time. Um, he appointed Louis Brandeis, one of the great progressive jurors uh, on the high bench, that sort of thing. And uh, that's really pretty impressive, uh, all that in one term. And so that's why I say um, he's he's really among one of the three greatest legislators among Presidents and and was a modern president in other ways. He addressed Congress in person uh, more often than any other president still to this day. Uh, the whole regular press conferences and kind of approached the presidency as as a sort of prime minister, using the fact that he's got democratic majorities in both houses for six out of eight years, uh, pushing through a kind of legislative agenda uh, by that that uh, very fact and that approach to the presidency. It's always intrigued me that T.R. and Wilson were so alike in terms of the progressive domestic agenda, but were not, uh, were not friendly with one another, to say the least. Is that right? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. They, they, uh, uh, I think T.R. probably was the better hater. Of the <laughs> uh, but I think there was definitely a respect there in 1912. Mm -hmm. T.R., I've always thought, went a little bit, crazy um, in 1914 with the outbreak of the war. If ever there was a time that he wanted would have wanted to have been president, mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. when you have the greatest war in human history to that time, and here he's stuck on the sidelines and he has to deal with Woodrow Wilson and William Jennings Bryan, uh, whom he called mm -hmm. the human trombone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he's very frustrated there. Yeah. But uh, they were each other's uh, principal archenemy, mm -hmm. right. politically and in terms of of uh, foreign policy too. Yeah. I think. So, so let's let's turn to that foreign policy now. President Wilson created, in your words, a new international political ideology. What ideas coalesced in those pre-war years 
to form the tenets of his new diplomacy and what groups on the left and right influenced his ideas in this arena? Yeah, well, I I love a line uh, by J. William Fulbright along uh, these lines here. He he once credited Wilson uh, with formulating, I'm going to quote here, the one great new idea of the 20th century in the field of international relations, the idea of an international organization with permanent processes for the peaceful settlement of international disputes. Um, and that's the end of the quote. And that's what that is about, basically, the so-called new diplomacy that uh, was put in a kind of cauldron with World War I. You had had um, an international peace movement, uh, movements for arbitration treaties, bilateral treaties, uh, wherein two countries might agree to settle any kind of dispute through uh, an international court system, that kind of thing. But all those uh, uh, ideas came to a, a higher kind of fruition during uh, the First World War, particularly in this country. But you had a League of, League of Nations movement in Great Britain. It was very, very active and sort of a counterpart to that in France as well. But in this country, uh, you had uh, two main groups, uh, which I would refer to as progressive internationalists and conservative internationalists. You know, when you look at the League of Nations fight, Somebody like Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a big opponent of Wilson's League, and even T.R. until he he died, they're not isolationists. They're a kind of internationalist. They're more conservative internationalists who believed in a world parliament, that kind of thing, and limited uh, arbitration, uh, but wanted to resist any diminution of of American sovereignty and exercise, uh, reserve the right to exercise force unilaterally. Progressive internationalists took that somewhat further. Uh, They were major impassioned proponents of this new kind of diplomacy, uh, which uh, would emphasize uh, reductions, major reductions in armaments, the idea of basically mandatory or compulsory arbitration of international disputes, and the idea of collective security, wherein if a violating nation would not cease and desist, you would um, first impose economic sanctions and then possibly, depending on the circumstances, military sanctions. Um, in, in certain ways, uh, it was a more advanced idea than the conservative internationalists because we're talking about the United States being willing to lose in court from time to time. Something like this is going to work. You can't stack the deck in your favor at every moment. Um, And uh, that became a a, a real uh, uh, sticking point in the controversy over whether or not the U.S. should join the League of Nations as Wilson designed it, uh, because it, it did involve some diminution of uh, of sovereignty, but this idea, uh, these general ideas, really came uh, to fuller fruition in early 1917 after Wilson was reelected to a second term, rather miraculously in certain respects, and he laid out this idea of peace without victory. Uh, he offered this is a big speech; it was talked about all over the world. Uh, he, argued, he, he made a case for the root causes of the war uh, being imperialism and militarism and balance of power politics. And he called for uh, peace without 
a, a major victory on one side or the other and to replace the old balance of power system with these processes for international arbitration, disarmament, calling for freedom of the seas, and an international collective security organization. And it did, it, in a way, it was like a, a, a new ideology or a new diplomacy mm. in that period. Well, I know at the beginning of the war, he was committed to neutrality, and he tried to mediate a peace. Can you tell us a bit about those efforts? And as part of that, can you tell us about the very influential Colonel Edward House? Yeah. Colonel House is quite a character. He was um, uh, a, a millionaire, a Texas politician, kind of a, a kingmaker. Maybe, the, well, there was uh, Hannah, of course, uh, with McKinley, but um, in a, in certain ways, um, Colonel House was uh, the first modern kingmaker, and they, he became friends with Wilson, and he had all kinds of grandiose ideas uh, of being kind of the power behind the throne, which he really never quite was. But he was Wilson's chief emissary during the war, um, and he sent him on a couple of ostensible peace missions to see and look into the possibility of um, of a mediated end uh, to uh, this war, which was really the greatest human-made catastrophe in in the history of, of, of humanity to that point. Uh, this was really going to be a tough thing to do, though, because 1915, 1916, you have to take into account how disastrous this war was. World War One is often... Um, eclipsed by World War II for obvious reasons. But if you look at the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom suffered 900,000, nearly a million killed. And that's two and a half times the number of, 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 of uh, subjects of the United Kingdom killed during World War II. Uh, the French lost 1.3 million in the war. In 1915 alone, well over 300,000 killed. That's almost all the Americans killed in World War II. So with each month, with each year, stakes get higher and higher uh, for both sides to, to win uh, the, the, uh, the war one way or the other. And because the United States was protected by an ocean seemed that uh, it could maintain neutrality. This was going to be awfully tough, though, because the British blockade uh, interfered with American trade with Germany, and the Germans unleashed the submarine, and um, that uh, threatened American life and property, of course. You have a big crisis with the sinking of the Lusitania. Uh, and uh, that issue um, uh, is a constant problem. It's settled for a while. Uh, in the spring of 1916 with the so-called Sussex, uh, Sussex uh, Pledge, in which the Germans agreed actually to curb, not to quit, but to curb uh, submarine warfare. And uh, that's how Wilson was able to campaign in 1916 on that slogan, he kept us out of war. But basically what he was offering the belligerents uh, was a peace now and with, with, without a victory on, and, and to stop the war before it had done civilization uh, a harm that could never be um, condoned uh, or, or, or repaired. So that was a huge challenge. Uh, but he tried that a couple of times. American neutrality 
this is an interesting thing also. Um, This was debated for years. It's not so much of an issue anymore. How and why and to what extent was the United States neutral in this? Because this had an impact on its capacity possibly to bring about a negotiated end to the war. Geographical geographical remoteness, of course, was really important in traditional non-involvement in European affairs. But it's interesting, American social history is very important here in understanding American neutrality. In 1914, a full third of the population of this country were immigrants, were recent immigrants and their children. And among the most numerous immigrant groups were Irish Americans and German Americans. They weren't going to want to rush headlong into war to to bail out the British, let's say, neither German Americans nor Irish Americans for fairly obvious reasons. And in any case, the combination of those progressive reforms that I mentioned before and this slogan, he kept us out of war, That and his beginning to advocate uh, the idea of an international organization after the war is over, he started doing this during the campaign of 1916. And that uh, that is how he really won re-election in 1916, because the Democrats, as you probably know, were the minority party. Wilson would never have won in 1912 if it hadn't been for the split between Roosevelt and Taft in the first place. And by 1916, that had been healed up. So after he was safely reelected, he realized that the U.S. could be plunged into the war the next day by any little German lieutenant in the command of a of a submarine because the Germans pledged to curb the submarine. And of course, they decided very fateful decision in early uh, January 1917. Part of the reason they made that pledge was because they only had about 25 or 30 subs at the time, and they did not want to provoke the United States into belligerency. 25 to 30 submarines was not enough really to affect the outcome of the war, that is to say to to, um, to blockade, to uh, have a counter to the British blockade. By the time you get to January 1917, they've got about 100 Marines. And so they gambled and they sort of pushed away Wilson's uh, hand in offering this kind of peace without victory mediation uh, and made this decision to go for all out totally unrestricted submarine warfare against all flags, including Americans. And um, that's pretty much the tripwire um, ultimately for the United States to to declare war. The Germans thought that they it would take the U.S. too long to get its act together uh, militarily and industrial to bring sufficient numbers of uh, troops to Europe uh, to tip the balance um, in favor of the Allies. We appreciate you listening to American POTUS and want to ask a favor. Please rate and review the podcast on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate all the kind words of our listeners and guests. And if you want to know more about Tom Knox's book, To End All Wars, more information is easy to find on AmericanPOTUS.com. So when Wilson finally makes that fateful decision to ask for a declaration of war, he makes a speech to Congress April 2nd, 1917, and in that he says we must make the world safe for democracy. What did that mean? 
Well, a lot of people misquote him, and I'm pleased that you quoted him um, uh, correctly. He's he's one of the great rhetoricians uh, among presidents. Uh, there's Jefferson and Lincoln and Wilson and maybe one or two others on a really good day. So when he said the world must be made safe for democracy, it's a good question. And what did he mean by that? In um, April of 1918, he made this remark uh, about democracy. He said, now, there isn't any one kind of government under which all nations ought to live. There isn't any one kind of government which we have the right to impose upon any nation. So I'm not fighting for democracy except for the peoples that want democracy. If they want it, then I'm ready to fight until they get it. If they don't want it, and it's none of my business. That's pretty interesting. So in other words, this is not a war to spread democracy or bring it to other people, so to speak. Uh, and the way I interpret this ultimately is the world must be made safe enough for democracy to flourish. So he's also well known for his famous 14 points, what he called a program for world peace. Could you tell us about some of the more fundamental of those 14 points. Yeah, the 14 points, um, about half of them pertain to territorial uh, recommendations for uh, settling boundaries and of, you know, of free and independent Poland and, and uh, return of Alsace-Lorraine to the French and that sort of thing. About a half of them um, have to do with uh, the new diplomacy, basically. It's important to set the context for this, though, because you would not have had the 14 points if you hadn't had the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, there were two Russian revolutions, one just the month before the U.S. entered the war. Uh, the Tsarist regime was overthrown and replaced by what's always described as a democratic socialist regime under uh, Alexander Kerensky. That rhetorically is one of the reasons Wilson could, could utter that phrase, the world must be made safe for democracy, and kind of cast it in those terms, because the Russians you know, had one of the most backward autocracies, um, in, more so than the Germans, really, in many ways. Um, so there's that. But in any case, no country in either World War I or World War II suffered more than Russia did. Lost more people, people starved, uh, the, the land ravaged, and um, the Russian people were no better off under Kerensky than they had been under the Tsar. And the Bolsheviks came to power partly um, on the strength of their slogan, peace and bread. There were bread riots and we had mutinies uh, in the army. And basically what they did was promise to pull Russia out of the war. That was the peace and to uh, feed people, which they did. They, they, they bought peace by surrendering about a third of Russian territory of the western part of, of Russia um, to Germany, basically. And that enabled the Germans to move untold divisions of infantry from the eastern front, where a lot more people were killed, to the western front. And they, the Germans came within a hair's breadth of winning the war, really, because we didn't start to get prodigious numbers there until the spring and into the summer of 1918. But there's politics in this also, because when the Bolsheviks pulled Russia out of the war, they published secret treaties to which all the belligerents were a party 
um, among the allies for dividing up the ter- territorial swag and sort of telling the lie uh, when the Bolsheviks published these treaties, telling the lie on the allied cause. I mean, what's the difference between the British and the Germans in this? So it fell to Wilson to recast what this war was all about. Um, and that's where you get the 14 points uh, coming in January 1914. Um, and uh, I won't go through all of them. Basically, it's calling for uh, an abol- at the end of secret treaties, that kind of thing, and freedom of the seas. Um, certain American issues like, like the removal of economic barriers, uh, like establishment of an equality of trade conditions among all nations. This is very important, the reduction of armaments to the lowest point consistent with domestic safety. Uh, and then what he this is a phrase that would come back to haunt him because he couldn't really accomplish all of this, but the reduct uh, but the um impartial adjustment of all colonial claims. Um and you know imperialism was probably imperial rivalries uh, uh was certainly one of the big issues that had brought on the war. Um so those kinds of things. Uh the sixth point was about the evacuation of Russian territory, so it could have, uh, it, it, it could, could, could develop on its own without interference. And of course, the 14th point um, was for him uh, the most important one, and it was uh, the formation of a League of Nations, whereas he a phrase in this case, a general association of nations must be formed under specific covenants for the purpose of affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial integrity to great and small states alike. And this was the peoples of most of the allied countries were about to give this up as it was, because this was such an almost undescribable catastrophe for all concerned. And Wilson basically comes along and provides this sort of trowel of cement to hold the shaky allied coalition together in an ideological sense um, until the Americans can get, you know, prodigious numbers of troops, ultimately about, uh, what, two million by the time you get into the middle to the end of the summer of nineteen. Uh, 18. So the 14 points is really quite significant for that reason, and also because it implied, um, to the extent it might have been possible, um, a fair peace. And when the Kaiser was overthrown in late September, early October 1918, and a more or less civilian government came to power, they sued for peace, and they didn't sue for peace vis-a-vis with the British or the French, but with Wilson. They wanted to to take steps to bring about an armistice uh, on the basis of the uh, 14 points. So the 14 points may well have shortened the war Hmm. somewhat, too. So Wilson enunciates those 14 points in January of 1918. Victory comes later that year. He traveled to Europe to negotiate what became the Treaty of Versailles, And there he meets up with his powerful counterparts, the British Prime Minister Lloyd George, French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau, and to a lesser degree, the Italian Prime Minister Vittorio Orlando. Can you tell us about each of those men and how Wilson interacted with them during the negotiations? Well, uh, at different times, not bad, (laughs) and at other times, uh, 
probably had the the worst relationship would be with Orlando. But one thing one has to keep in mind, uh, Wilson was the first president to do what he did by traveling abroad uh, for such a long time. He he left in December um, and he came back for about two weeks in the middle of February, but then went back again and stayed until the end of June. Um, and when he arrived, you know, the 14 points was 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 regarded as kind of sacred text by uh, everyday people. And the people were hanging his pictures uh, in their living rooms and burning candles in front of them, that sort of thing. The Russians loved the 14 points. The Bolsheviks helped to circulate uh, copies of it behind, uh, you know, German lines, uh, that kind of thing. And when Wilson came to Paris uh, or to Europe, I should say, um, never before and probably not since has any American president been um, re- received with almost hysteria uh, for, you know, he was re- referred to as the Moses from across the Atlantic. When he came to Paris, two million Parisians uh, came out into the streets to greet him. It required 35,000 French troops to control the crowds. And uh, everywhere he went, when he came into Rome, uh, it was said that Caesar had never had a greater triumph. Um, everywhere he went. And this really buoyed his uh, political power in a psychological way. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this story in part because it's really quite a remarkable um, spectacle on, 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 in a political sense. But also, it made... Uh, Clemenceau, for instance, wary because they, they, they didn't want Wilson to have all that much power. And he was very popular with their own people, with the French left, with labor movements in Great Britain and France as well. And Clemenceau um, uh, took a lot of efforts to um, keep Wilson from being further uh, exposed to, to everyday French people during uh, the time. And they had Different ideas. Clemenceau made that famous remark, um, God gave us the Ten Commandments and we proceeded to break them. Wilson gives us 14 points. We shall see. And so, <laughs> but I should say that the British and the French and the Italians all fairly readily accepted the idea of a League of Nations. They had nothing to lose, really, by it. But probably early on in the peace conference, um, Clemenceau and Wilson charmed each other. Clemenceau came to uh, Wilson's uh, hotel uh, to greet him, and um, he was delighted when Wilson came uh, to uh, his home the next day uh, to repay the the compliment, that sort of thing. Probably uh, the British and the Americans uh, got along the best because um, Lord Robert Cecil uh, was um, very active in the League movement there and was the author of uh, of one particular draft of the League of Nations. Um, Wilson in Orlando um, were never going to get along well because of Wilson's popularity again among the Italian left and the secret treaties that I mentioned before come into play here because the Italians, you know, the Italians started out with the central powers and moved over to the allies because they gave them a better deal in terms of territorial booty at the end of the war, um, like uh, Fiume and the Dalmatian coast. And uh, Wilson, you know, to the extent possible, wanted to see uh, self-determination of subject peoples, that sort of thing. And, um, Orlando uh, end up leaving the uh, peace conference in a in a huff, uh, and Wilson 
can appeal to the Italian people over the, their own prime minister's head to support him rather than their own prime minister on this particular uh, issue, which kind of backfired. Um, there were many times when Wilson was a minority of one in different situations, um, and there wasn't too much he could uh, do to um, curb the idea of reparations and the way uh, colonial territories got divided up under the mandate system, that sort of thing. But he did get the League of Nations, and that was no small achievement. Did he believe that League would be able to take care of those deficiencies in, in the treaty in the long term? Well, I think so, yes. Um, people referred to the war psychosis. If you think about when you read the, the literature uh, by the lost generation in the 1920s, uh, there's there's more than a cliche to that. This was, this was humanity's greatest self-inflicted catastrophe. Uh, and there's tremendous disillusionment. And there's a war psychosis. And Wilson felt that if you at least establish this international organization to not eliminate war, uh, that's impossible, but to lessen the prospect of it and to start off with agreements to submit disputes to an international court before you resort to arms. And everybody agreed to certain uh, reductions in their armaments industries and, and their um, their war stores, all, all of that, that those things would go a long way to kind of, that the League could create a kind of temporary shelter after this horrible storm um, when uh, cooler heads could prevail and injustices, even those embedded in the treaty, uh, the Treaty of Versailles could be worked out um, without those pressures. Wilson's uphill battle to gain congressional support for his peace plan is coming up. But first, we want to remind you to visit AmericanPOTUS.com, where you can easily find more information on Tom Knox's book, To End All Wars. Thanks for subscribing and listening to American POTUS. Now, we know ultimately the treaty was voted down in the U.S. Senate. Was that because of the League's inclusion? Was it because of the president's subsequent illness? Why, why was that treaty ultimately unsuccessful in the Senate? Well, there were, there were a lot of reasons for, for that. Uh, I, I don't want to go into too much uh, minutiae about it, but I'd like to stress this idea in a sense of competing internationalisms. Um, there's a man named Gilbert Hitchcock who was the Democratic leader in the Senate, and he remarked at the beginning of the parliamentary debate over the Treaty of Versailles, which contained the covenant of the League of Nations. And he said, we must, he said, internationalism has come. Everyone knows that. Internationalism has come, and we must choose what form the internationalism is to take. And therein was the rub, because whereas most Republicans like Lodge and others would have been happy uh, to accept a league with, with with some changes in it. They worried that Wilson had consigned or would consign too many important national interests to the will of an international authority. And that made it unacceptable. Uh, whereas Wilson believed that 
Americans simply had to be willing to take this step to, to, to accept the risk of losing in court occasionally if the league was going to function properly. So for him, international security involved the acceptance of constraints as well as obligations, or as he, he, he put it later on, he said, a renunciation of wrongdoing on the part of powerful nations, including the United States. And let's, let's, let's see if this can work. You couldn't do it overnight. You had to take small steps, uh, starting with, say, agreements to arbitrate disputes before recourse to war. The more, the, the more uh, uh, small steps like that you take, uh, you build upon those precedents. The, the League Covenant was kind of like um, a constitution. It had to be interpreted, and it had to be put into action to determine what its real meaning was. And Wilson had a somewhat more advanced uh, idea uh, of of what this should be, as opposed to his um, opponents, chiefly Republicans, but not exclusively. So I think really the League of Nations foundered on the rocks of sovereignty, because Wilson said many times uh, that every nation had to be willing to surrender, you didn't use that term, but a certain modicum of sovereignty for the greater good of the whole. And American conservative internationalists did not want to do that. They wanted to be completely uh, masters of their own house. And um, that's what that was about. Now, the stroke certainly did not help. Uh, Wilson had not been well. He was older than his 62 years uh, when he had the stroke. Uh, He worked very long hours for weeks and months uh, in Paris. And he thought that in order to carry the treaty, he had to go off on a speaking tour, which he did for about three weeks, to put pressure on um, Republican senators in 1918 was a crucial midterm election, maybe more important than some presidential elections. Wilson had enjoyed majorities in both houses for six years. And then the midterms of 1918, for reasons we really don't have time to go into, um, he lost those majorities, but the Senate by only two. And you had very, very close races in several states. In about a half a dozen states, if you had just 10,000 votes, to spread out, the Democrats would have controlled the Senate by three. Now the Republicans recalled, uh, controlled it by two. They controlled committees. They, uh, Lodge became chair of a Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He used up more than two weeks just reading the treaty aloud, that sort of thing. Public opinion in general favored American membership in the League. And so Lodge used these kind of delaying tactics Wilson goes out on this speaking tour, and it was quite dramatic, predicting if the United States didn't go into this League of Nations or if it went into it on terms of its own choosing, which would cause it not to work at all, then we'd have another war that would come maybe in the next generation when it'd be much worse than the catastrophe we've just been through. That really helped to break his health, and he suffered a, 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 a major uh, stroke. It laid him low. He Today, he would have been forced to resign. He was a brittle husk of his former self for about a year and a, and a half. But one thing about the stroke I'd like to emphasize, 
um, as catastrophic as it was. He faded in and out. There was a so-called smelling commission put together of, of a Democrat and a Republican, one of whom was Albert Fall, who would be one of the, uh, one of the corrupt senators who went down during Harding's period to see how Wilson was. And Wilson was had a very good day that day. Um, and um, and Fall comes back saying that he is, is amazingly fit. Um, you know, he's suffered a stroke, but he seems to be getting better. But he he really wasn't. The 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 thing that I like to stress. On on this, though, is that when historians focus, I, I think, a little bit too much on the stroke, and it definitely was important, it tends to sidetrack or rob the, uh, the League of, the, of this larger significance of um, the ideological gulf that separated these two contending uh, forms of, of internationalism. Um, the, the the crisis of the stroke was was probably a key factor in the failure uh, of, of ratification, but it doesn't automatically follow that the absence of a stroke would have produced a better outcome because politics had changed. It, it, uh, the politics of the league did not begin with the peace conference or with Wilson's stroke. It goes back to 1916. That's when it enters American politics. And the Republicans had, in a sense, had uh, um, defeat snapped from the jaws of victory because Wilson was expected to lose. And he won. And he won partly. All the editorials talked about the Adamson Act, eight-hour day while that is. He kept us out of war, but not only he kept us out of war, but he's coming up with ideas to to try to avoid a catastrophe like this again. And so it goes back to those the partisan aspects of that as well, which become more and more embittered um, as you move along into the, the war period. Republicans in 1918, Will Hayes, the chair of the Republican National Committee, who later on would be uh, the chief Hollywood censor in the early days of, of Hollywood, uh, fashioned the um, the platform of the party, and this was commonplace. Republicans referred to Wilson and his advisors as Bolsheviks or as socialists. So that this is partly to the fact that you had a lot of um, uh, centralization of the of the economy during the war, which you naturally had to have in order to put America's industrial and agricultural might in harness to fight a war like this. Uh, but uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, the government. Um, uh, nationalized the railroads, for instance, for the duration only, but nonetheless, it really exerted a lot of control, obviously, over um, the economy. And that, in tandem with the 14 points ideology, was enough for the Republicans to seize upon to attack Democrats as being somewhat less than patriotic, that kind of thing. And, and uh, so those were factors in this. Um, that, so you have serious, authentic differences between progressives and conservatives. The other factor in this, not to belabor the point too long, is that Wilson won in 1916 because he put together that coalition of traditional Democrats, but also hundreds of thousands, at least hundreds of thousands, maybe low millions, of former socialist voters, because Debs had won a, about uh, a million votes in 1912, and the socialist presidential vote went down by about four or 500,000 when the national vote for socialist candidates went up to 1.25 million. And 
it's estimated that at least a third of the people who voted for Theodore Roosevelt in 1912 came over to Wilson in 1916. So the normal Democratic vote was swelled by untold numbers of socialist and progressive voters to put Wilson over the top. During the war, Wilson grievously acquiesced in the suppression of civil liberties during the war. Uh, And 100% Americanism surged through the body politic, and um, Wilson allowed his postmaster general to shut down leftist or German uh, dailies and magazines, that sort of thing. And you had uh, the ex- Espionage and uh, Sedition Acts uh, passed. A couple thousand people were jailed for sedition. Eugene Debs, infamously for the high crime of speech, he made a speech against the war in uh, Canton, Ohio, and received a 10-year prison sentence for it. Well, that disillusioned a lot of progressives um, who probably stayed home in the 1918 midterms because they were disillusioned with Wilson over that and also because of some of the punitive uh, parts of the Treaty of Versailles. Those things had nothing to do with the stroke. You see what I'm getting at? I see. see. Mm -hmm. There are really, really authentic, important political issues in this that suggested uh, not necessarily uh, a happier outcome minus the stroke. Not that the stroke isn't, you know, it's the worst uh, uh, crisis of presidential uh, disability in American history to this day. So you you end your book, Tom, with some thoughts on Wilson's legacy. How have his ideas, how has his work influence later politicians and diplomats. And as part of that, would you say that the United Nations would have been a fulfillment of his vision for a League of Nations? Well, yes and no. Um, Harry Truman believed that. Uh, He said that uh, the creation of the United Nations in 1945 uh, was a vindication of Wilson. Wilson was probably more popular during World War II and dead for almost 20 years then, than he was in his own time. Because the United States went through um, a bit of a change politically over this question of internationalism. Uh, internationalism. There's this notion of a so-called second chance. That Wilson becomes more of a prophet during World War II because of the, because of the war uh, and because we did not enter the League of Nations. So there's a second chance here. And you could hardly pick up a a magazine after 1943, let's say, that didn't have an article about Wilson and the fact that we didn't enter the League of Nations. Hollywood even got into the act. Daryl Zanuck at 20th Century Fox produced a big technicolor spectacular about Wilson's life, which the last half an hour was about the uh, tragedy of the U.S. not going into the league. And it was made as a kind of propaganda. It won five Oscars for screenplay and cinematography. Interesting. So that's the kind of situation you have there. But Franklin Roosevelt uh, was one of Wilson's bright young men. He was assistant secretary of the Navy during the war. And he studied those politics very closely. And So I say yes and no because the Charter of the UN contained most of the so-called Republican reservations to put certain curbs on, would have put certain curbs on the League of Nations or the nature of American participation in it if it was going to go into the League of Nations. And some would argue in a way that although you have a lot of multilateral economic uh, accords after World War II and things like NATO, but that in certain other respects, 
The United States established a kind of anti-Wilsonian pattern to its internationalism. Wilson was talking about the about multilateralism and ending unilateral interventions. That's what would bring on wars. Uh, and ostensibly membership in the League of Nations would have curbed that. But in the name, of course, of anti-communism, ostensibly anyhow, in the Cold War, the U.S. reserved the right to undertake unilateral interventions at will, often in violation of the UN uh, and international law, and often with disastrous consequences. Uh, so there is that. You, if you look at Vietnam, for instance, Republican and Democratic administrations alike spurned multilateral solutions to Vietnam and instead, you know, pursued this war unilaterally for, for years. You have the Eisenhower administration overthrowing functioning democratic governments in Guatemala and Iran, replacing them with dictatorships, those kinds of things. You have a situation, as you know, with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s when a majority of so-called third world countries uh, exercised their, their, their voices anyhow in the General Assembly, if not in the Security Council. Reagan started to call the UN um, anti-American, that, that kind of thing. So I'm not so sure that a Wilsonianism of that sort has, um, has really been practiced uh, very, very consistently. I think that even if you would accept my argument that the U.S. never really practiced authentic Wilsonian internationalism the way I'm, I'm, I'm arguing it, that in the 21st century, I don't think we can afford to separate ourselves any longer from the United Nations or to play a diminished role in the life of that organization or the international community. If you look at the, the challenges that confront us, and I, and I think today, I'm hoping anyhow, that there's a growing re recognition that seems to be taking hold that any number of critical, critical problems besetting all the nations simply can't be solved except through concerted actions of an international community. And that Wilson, you know, made a fair case for his kind of of, of, of league. He, he made this comment once. He said, only those who are ignorant of the world can believe that any nation, even so great a nation as the United States, can stand alone and play a single part in the history of mankind. And so, so I, I don't think there's a single tenet of, of the 14th point in Wilsonian internationalism that doesn't resonate for us in, 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 uh, today. In our, in, think about you know, global warming, pandemics, world, the world health, cybersecurity, food security, nuclear proliferation, resolving disputes among nations without resort to arms, multilateral, not unilateral, but multilateral enforcement of international law. And I think most of all, substituting nationalism with ungrudging internationalism and exploring what can be accomplished by cultivating the habit of cooperation, that that's one of, uh, one of the best hopes that Wilson kind of leaves behind. So I, I think that that's a lot of his, his legacy, even though he did say he felt compelled to say that he, I do not know of any absolute guarantee against errors of human judgment or the violence of human passion.
Okay, Tom, I have a few short questions about the personal side of President Wilson. He had the weight of the world on his shoulders. How did he unwind while the negotiations were going on? Did he have any personal hobbies that he could use as a stress reliever? Not hobby, uh, hobbies per se, but um, he, um, he certainly was a big reader. You know, he was a historian, um, widely read historian and a college professor, all of that. Uh, but he was, um, he was, he and William Howard Taft were the first two really uh, big golfing presidents. Uh, they both loved to play golf and Wilson played a lot of golf. Um, he liked to go when, when he was, um, you know, a college professor and president of Princeton. Uh, he did a lot of bike riding and hiking, that kind of thing. Um, as president, he liked to go out for drives along the Potomac, along the basin or out in the countryside, or for, you know, short excursions on the presidential yacht, that kind of activity. Um, that uh, He liked those kinds of recreational activities. I find this fascinating. He's the only president to be laid to rest in Washington, D.C. So why did why did he and his family choose the National Cathedral? Well, they didn't actually choose it. That's interesting. Um, but it did happen. Um, <clears throat> you have to think about Wilson, where he's from. He was born in Stanton, Virginia, where the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library and Birthplace Museum are located. Wonderful places to visit, incidentally. Um, and he spent uh, some of his adolescence in Columbia, South Carolina, um, went to Princeton, went, went to uh, Davidson College in, in, in uh, North Carolina for a while, then to Princeton. His wife of nearly 30 years, Ellen Wilson, from Rome, Georgia, died the week that the Great War in Europe broke out in August 1914. And I bring this up because of where you might think he might have been buried. Edith Wilson, whom he married in December 1915, who some people refer to her as the first woman president. She really wasn't that. That's an exaggeration. Um, but she was important in this because she uh, was, and his doctor shrouded him uh, from too much scrutiny during his long illness uh, with the stroke. Where could he be buried? Well, she would not want to have her beloved Woodrow buried beside his former wife in Rome, Georgia. Uh, Princeton wasn't particularly appealing in that sense. Um, so, so, so where you see what I'm getting at? She was Episcopalian. Wilson was Presbyterian. Uh, as it happened, the um, Episcopalian bishop of Washington D.C. knew her and offered uh, uh, this chapel. And at the time, it would have been the basement or the ground floor of what was going to become the National Cathedral. And that is how that happened. Um, there was, I guess, the option for him to be buried uh, in Arlington, and I'm not sure why that was. Alan, isn't William Howard Taft buried there? Yes, I believe that's correct. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Of course, Taft didn't die until, what, 1930? I should know the answer to that, but I do not. <laughs> so that's kind of how that happened. It's a, it's a great site to visit. That cathedral is just, just amazing. Uh, walk in it and to go to the the crypt where where uh, Wilson is entombed, um, and the it has uh, a crusader's sword on it, which is rather interesting. And I'll tell you another thing; it's really really neat to do, and that is to go outside and walk around the building, the full circumference of it. It will take you a while to do that, and simply to appreciate uh, its architecture and its 
presence. It's really, really a beautiful uh, structure. But that's really the extent of, of, of the story of how it happened, really. I don't think he had thought all that much about it. It was pretty much uh, Edith Wilson's uh, decision. Tom, what's your favorite moment or quote of his from his time in office? Well, I think probably, uh, I don't know if it's my favorite, more or less, the the uh, the peroration at the end of the war address uh, is really quite stirring. Um but the one line in from from the uh, the war address is the world must be made safe for democracy, and you know uh, that might not have seemed like it was going to be uh, like it has always rung loud through the decades. But today, I think it's really quite relevant. The world must be made safe for democracy. We have an awful lot of countries now that uh, have have anti-democratic strains running in their politics and anti-democratic heads of state. Um, So it's, you know, it's no longer a foregone conclusion, as I think all of us growing up assumed that, you know, Um, it's it's like anything else. Um, The Voting Rights Act, I mean, that was established in 1965. And look where we are today. We're still fighting along those lines. You have to push forward with all these things, I think, at all times. And um, so that would be, I guess, uh, one of my uh, favorite lines of Wilson. And I think uh, his his relevance and how you'd sum all this up, I, I would defer to J. William Fulbright, arguably the most brilliant man to, to uh, chair uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, close friend of Lyndon Johnson's, served in that capacity as um, the uh, chair for almost 12 years, uh, author of the Fulbright Resolution, beginning with the League of, with the United Nations and also the Fulbright um, International Exchange. Um, quite a legacy. But he made this remark that, um, that Wilson was the author of the one uh, great new idea in the realm of international relations, and that is the establishment of permanent processes uh, for the resolution of international disputes among nations. And Tom, just one final question for you. Could be the toughest. In just one sentence, can you summarize his peace efforts as president? Well, I would say that, really. Um, to bring about the international organization that could help uh, various nations avoid catastrophes like the one they had just been through. Um, and that's, I, I guess, in a sense, I was anticipating that that uh, that thought uh, to summarize it, and it would uh, it would go back to um, to Fulbright's line about Wilson's contribution with a new idea. To Wilson was not necessarily an original thinker, um, but he 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 was a grand synthesizer and propagator of this idea of establishing processes for the peaceful settlement of disputes, of international disputes among nations. Well, Tom, this is a fascinating uh, conversation. What's what's next for you? Well, I've been... Um I've done other things on Wilson in the last uh, three or four years. You know, Jeff uh, Engel, the the founding um, director of our Center for Presidential History, and Richard Emmerman worked on a volume that I contributed to called 14 Points for the 21st Century. 
about 14 different kinds of of ideas, basically, that would be uh, good to put into practice in the 21st century. And because of my work on Wilson, I was asked to uh, write the first essay and to um, make it into one of the new 14 points. And and it would be, you know, the establishment of a new internationalism uh, for the United States. Um, A couple of years ago, I did another essay for that came out of a... um, symposium uh, that the Center for Presidential History sponsored on uh, what happens in the White House when illness or death or scandal strikes. And I sat down and did a kind of monographic piece on this question of Wilson's uh, illness and the, the nature of it um, and and its implications for um, his presidency and the outcome of the ratification fight. And um just lately, the last couple of years, I've served as chair of the Clemens Department of History and still have some time yet to go in that capacity. And uh, it's it's pretty much a full-time job. We have 22 terrific scholars and wonderful teachers in this department, which include uh, the director of our Center for Presidential History. We have a great uh, Clemens Center uh, for Southwest Studies. And um, in COVID times um, as well, um, it's it's been kind of a full-time job. So I've really had to, to um, not be much of a scholar um, the last couple of years, but I hope to get back to my uh, two-volume study of uh, George McGovern, uh, who was a kind of latter-day Wilsonian in, in many respects. I published a, a volume on uh, the first portion of his career up through 1968. And the second volume uh, will cover that uh, very famous presidential campaign in 1972 when he lost pretty badly uh, to Richard Nixon. But there's a Wilson connection there, too. He He's one of the few people running for president with a Ph.D. in history. And he got his Ph.D. in the late 40s and early 50s at Northwestern, where the greatest all-time great Wilson scholar, Arthur Link, uh, my mentor at Princeton, was then teaching, and George McGovern was Arthur Link's um, first graduate student, even though we're about the same age. Um, so there's, um, I'm always interested in the history of progressive politics and, and peace movements and internationalism. And George McGovern is, is, is very deeply tied to those causes too i really enjoyed that that first volume looking forward to the second one i love all your work tom it's been so great catching up with you and uh, just a great conversation thank you so much for joining us on american potus thank you alan and thank you too scott it was really really a lot of fun thanks for listening to this episode of the american potus podcast if you have a moment please rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We would like to thank author Tom Nock for joining us for this episode on Woodrow Wilson. More information on all of his published titles, along with all our other terrific guests, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have for future topics. And remember to like or follow us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau. An original music score is by Jonathan Clark Music.
Finally, it's our presidential last word from Woodrow Wilson. Quote, I would rather lose in a cause that will someday win than win in a cause that will someday lose. <laughs>